please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And we'll be reading the entire psalm this morning. Please give your full attention to the word of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, you, o you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of the most heartbreaking movies that I've ever watched was called Away From Her. In that movie, Julie Christie plays an older woman who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And early on in the movie, she decides that she will go into a long-term long care facility early so that she would not become a burden to her husband as she would lose her memory and as the disease would take hold. And so her husband comes every day to that long-term care facility to visit his wife, to be with her, and to care for her. He does it faithfully day in and day out. But what makes that movie so heartrending, as if that wasn't hard enough, is that as she forgets over the course of the story, as she forgets who she is, she forgets her husband, but then falls in love with another man and doesn't realize what she's doing. And it's just heart-wrenching to watch the husband endure that, to watch his wife forget him and fall in love with someone else. 
I thought of that movie, even though I haven't seen it for a long time, I thought of that movie as I was reflecting upon Psalm 103 these past couple of weeks. Because in scripture, that's one of the most often uh, repeated commands from the Lord to his people is, do not forget your God. Do not forget your God. Forgetting our God should be as unthinkable to us as a bride forgetting her bridegroom or a bridegroom forgetting his bride. And yet, isn't that the essence of the story of Scripture? Is how God is a faithful, faithful God to his people is forgotten over and over again. And what happens when God's people forget him? They fall in love with the gods of this world. They commit spiritual adultery and fall in love with the gods of this world. Idolatry is the result of forgetting your God. And so that's why scripture again and again and again calls upon us to remember our God. Do you remember when the Israelites were delivered through the exodus from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery, from death itself, as they were delivered from Egypt through the wilderness and were about to enter into the promised land to receive all the promised blessings of the covenant. Do you remember what God said to his people as they stood on the threshold of the promised land? This is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. The Lord says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks and multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That is basically the paradigm that is set up throughout Scripture is that the characteristic of those who fall away, the apostate who fall away, the characteristic is that they forget their God and they commit idolatry. But the characteristic of those who have true faith are those who continually remember their Lord. So remembering God is so important to what it means to being a disciple of Christ. And it's essential to what we call worship. Scripture often calls us to remember our God. The fourth commandment, in the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath day holy, it says this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We remember God's saving work, therefore we keep his commandments. Remember how many times the Israelites set up stone pillars as memorials, so that they would remember God's great works of deliverance. 
the, the annual feasts that all the people gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate. The purpose of those feasts was to remember God's deliverance, God's protection, and God's provision for his people. Even the tabernacle itself, the tabernacle and the animal sacrifices of the tabernacle, all those rituals were to remember the covenant and God's work of redemption. And when you think of the frequent periods of apostasy, the frequent periods of, of falling away in the history of Israel, they were characterized by God himself as failures to remember their God. One particular instance was when, you know, you remember during the time of the judges, there was always this cycle of remembering and then forgetting and then coming under oppression by God, from God's enemies and then being delivered and then remembering and then forgetting and this cycle was going on and on. And here it's described in Judges 8 very clearly. It says, after the death of Gideon, the judge, it says, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. The tragedy of forgetting your God and committing idolatry as a result of it. Well, Psalm 103 is a psalm of worship, but it's a psalm about remembering. And like I said, our worship in a covenant community is about remembering the covenant remembering God and his promises to us and what he has done to fulfill his promises to us. You sometimes wonder, how can I worship the Lord? What's wrong with my worship? Why is my worship lifeless? Well, at the root of it, at the core of it, is the question, are you remembering your God? Who he is and what he has done for you. David, in the beginning of this psalm, Psalm 103, he calls upon himself, he exhorts himself, he commands himself, to remember the Lord. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's how worship begins, by remembering God and his benefits. We're beginning this year, as Owen said, with a, a look at this vision statement that you'll find in the back of your bulletin, which is just the leadership of this church is an attempt to try to look at the scripture as a whole and understand what are we doing here? Why are we here? Where, where, where are we headed with all this? What's our goal in ministry? And we came up based on Psalm, uh, uh, Isaiah 61, the first three verses, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, based on that passage of scripture, which we felt was a summary of the vision that God has set before the church, we defined our own vision in light of that. And so we talked about what it means to become oaks of righteousness using the language of Isaiah 61. That the oaks of righteousness is, is a picture of the church, a forest of, of oak trees that are growing strong and bearing much fruit and having great impact. And we said that at that point, we're going to look over these four weeks, we're going to look at the four different measurements we use, the four marks of a healthy oak of righteousness. What are the characteristics of a healthy disciple of Christ, in other words? And we look at it in four different areas. We talk about, in our vision statement, growing roots deep in God's word. In other words, to be a good disciple, you need to know the word. You need to be educated in the word. And knowing the word of God is where it all begins. But then, as we know the word of God and the Holy Spirit works to us to understand and apply it in our lives, we begin to bear fruit. And the statement talks about bearing the fruit of God-centered worship 
and God-centered hospitality, that that's the fruit of loving one another and worshiping the Lord are the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working in our lives to the effect that we branch out and have an impact in our community and beyond for the gospel. And so that's why we talk about our ministry in terms of those four marks of an oak of righteousness. Education, um, hospitality, worship, and outreach. And we're going to be looking at those four areas. But we're starting with the most important one, worship. And I say it's the most important of those four to say to you, first of all, that that is our priority here, is always going to be the worship of God's people. That's the ultimate peak of our ministry together is when we come together in the name of Christ and we worship. But you remember back in Isaiah 61 verse 3, it says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Because the ultimate goal is not just that we become these strong, mature disciples that can be characterized as oaks of righteousness, but the ultimate goal is that he be glorified because it is his work. From beginning to end, it's his work to make us over into the image of Christ that we be those kinds of mature disciples. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a doctrinal standard of our church, our denomination, teaches us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's the ultimate purpose, to glorify God. And so when we gather together here, this is the most important thing we do together. Everything else we do points to these moments when we gather together to give the glory to God for what he has done and for who he is. So Psalm 103 teaches us to remember. How does it do that? First of all, notice that David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. All that is within me. This is real soul music here. The whole soul is involved in singing this psalm. David calls upon every part of his inmost being, his mind, his will, his emotions, that every part of him would be involved in this very sincere, heartfelt worship. And I think that's one of the things we struggle with the most, isn't it? Is real, sincere, heartfelt worship. Not just going through the motions, but all of our being, be engaged in worship to God. Some churches are very emotional, very experiential, very expressive. That's not us. We're very laid back. We're very uh, introverted in our worship. We're very thoughtful. Our, our worship tends to focus more on the intellectual side, the mind. We delve deep into the teachings of Scripture. And we're real quiet about it. And unfortunately, in the church, we tend to set these things up as two competing things. Are you going to go to a real expressive, emotional, experiential church? Or are you going to go to a real academic, intellectual, uh, deep thinking kind of church? And it's a false dichotomy. There's no reason these things should be separated. You should all be saying amen when you feel free to say amen. But if you don't feel like saying amen, you shouldn't feel compelled to say amen because it should be heartfelt. It should be sincere. And so we're going to work on being more emotional. We're going to work on being more expressive because we err on the other side of the spectrum. But the point is, is that David is telling us that real worship involves all your inmost being, mind, will, and emotions. And that's your goal, is to engage every part of who you are 
in the worship of God. The other thing I want to say is kind of a preliminary is that worship tells a story. Psalm 103 tells a story. A worship service tells a story. And you know how to follow along the stories? You know when you, you open up a new book, a novel, and you want to know where the story's going to go, you want to get a quick picture, you go to the table of contents and you kind of look at how the chapter headings go and you kind of get a sense of how the story's going to go. In a worship service, that's the liturgy. That's your bulletin. You know, that, that's, that's, the sto- that's the headings of the story that we're going to follow. And it's the same story every week. And I know people that don't know the Lord wonder, why in the world do you go to hear the same story every week? It's because it's about the gospel. It's the gospel that we need. It's the story that we need to hear. Talk about liturgical churches and non-liturgical churches. And some people that come from a very simple liturgy, all churches have a liturgy. Liturgy just means what are the elements of your order of service. And some churches have a very simple liturgy. You come in, you sing 5, 6, 8, 12, 15 songs, and then you get tired, you sit down, and then somebody preaches at you for 40 minutes and 50 minutes, and then you get up and you sing another song or two. And that's that's the liturgy. It's very simple, but it's a liturgy. Ours is a little more complex. We add some elements in there because we're trying to tell a more complex story. But it's still a liturgy. And that that liturgy has the purpose of walking us through the gospel every week. We talk about the story of scripture being about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the story of scripture. That's the story of every worship service. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And that's the story. We may emphasize one part of it more one week and one part, another part of it another week, but it's always that story. That's what the service needs to be about. That's why our service is sometimes people that are new to our church, they'll say, there's so much scripture in your liturgy. Very, very intentional. Because not only is it a story, it's a dialogue. God speaks the truth to us and we respond in prayer in praise, in reflection. God speaks and we respond. God initiates and we respond. That's why our our sermons are always explanations of a passage of scripture. We walk you through that passage and help you to understand it as best we can because it's not about us. It's about God speaking to you. And the more you understand what this passage of scripture is saying, the more you're going to be able to worship. And so the whole purpose of the service is for you to remember this gospel story. Remember your God, who he is and what he has done for you. First of all, let's look at how Psalm 103 tells us how we are to remember God's grace towards us, what he has done for us. That's where he begins. He says, forget not all his benefits. And he lists four categories of benefits for us that are that are some of the probably the most important categories of benefits that God has given to us by his grace the first one he mentions is his forgiveness remember his forgiveness he who forgives all your iniquities he lists this one first I think because it is the foundational benefit from God to us if we don't get this benefit from God then we don't get any benefit from God All the other benefits that God gives us in life, all the other good things that we experience in life, 
are based upon this benefit. They're all contingent on us receiving this benefit, forgiveness, cleansing, the taking away of our guilt and shame, the removal of the penalty of our sin. We enter into worship with the understanding that we don't deserve to be here. And this God that we come to address in worship doesn't owe us anything. But he's offered to give us everything in Christ. Every blessing that we have is contingent on the blessing of forgiveness. As Jesus once said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's worthless if God were to give you every other good thing in the universe, but withhold from you his forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Those blessings come to us in Christ. As he goes on to say in verse 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And that's why we take time. And some people, when you come from a different church uh, background, you may not understand why do we take time at the very beginning of our service of all places to, to reflect upon our sins. Doesn't that kind of kill the tone? Doesn't that kind of take you know, the atmosphere in a downward beat? But you've got to understand that we need to remember the basis on which we were there to worship. We need to remember that we are sinners saved by grace. We confess our sins, but we don't do it as a ritual in order to gain forgiveness. We confess our sins because we are already forgiven. And that's why immediately after having reflected upon our sins and remembering our sins, we are reminded of the assurance of our pardon because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 has that assurance of pardon. I'm sure you've heard it as part of our confession of sin and assurance of pardon in our liturgy before. Beginning in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We do not confess our sins in order to wallow in our sins we confess our sins so that we can turn our focus to the assurance of our pardon. Our sins have already been put away. They were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. They are put as far away as east is from west. How far is that? Infinite distance between east and west. That is how you, in the midst of your worship, prepare yourself to continue in worship, knowing that you deserve nothing, but you've been given all things in Christ the two greatest hindrances to worship, I think, are for someone to sit there and remember your shame and guilt over your sins and not remember God's forgiveness. You cannot worship if you only remember your sins and don't remember your pardon in Christ. But you also cannot worship if you do not remember your sins in the first place. If you walk into the presence of a holy God without remembering your sins. Walk into the presence of a holy God as though you deserve to be there by your own merits. We must enter by remembering our sins, remembering the cross, and remembering the cleansing of God's grace.
Our sins are put as far away as east from west, and that's how far away is our shame and our guilt. The second benefit that David mentions is that we need to remember our healing. He heals all our diseases. Back in the Old Testament, one of the names, one of the Hebrew names given to God is, is Yahweh Rapha, the Lord, our healer. We need to remember that our healing is only found in God. Yes, God has given us doctors. God has given us medicine. God has given us many ways to address our physical and mental health and emotional health. But ultimately, only God is our healer. All healings ultimately come from him. And one day, if we belong to Christ, if our sins are forgiven, the promise of God that he cannot break is that he will heal us completely in body and soul and spirit and make us completely well. We need to remember that. Even while we do still suffer in body and soul in this fallen world as sinners among sinners, we easily remember our sicknesses, our aches, our pains, our injuries. We need to daily remember that God created our bodies and our souls, and because of the work of Christ, he will heal them. As we said in Isaiah 61 a couple weeks ago, he binds up the brokenhearted. He heals us from within. And one day, all suffering, internal and external, will be gone. The third benefit that David mentions is deliverance from death. We need to remember that God is the one who delivers us from death every moment of every day. And he is the one who will deliver us completely and finally from death on that last great day. It says that he redeems our life from the pit. That's how David puts it. The pit is a synonym for the Old Testament word sheol, the grave, death. He redeems our life from the grave. He, he's done it in the past. He's doing it right now. And ultimately, he will do it once and for all. When I was a, a new Christian, I'd only been a Christian for several months. And I was driving to work one morning, and I got distracted by something and took my eye off the road. And... I started to drift over the center line of the highway as I was coming over the rise of a hill. And then I kind of came to my senses and I looked up to see where I was and all I could see was the color red. That's all I could see in my windshield. My windshield was filled with the color red. And just it, what it was was the, the, the cab of a tractor trailer that was about to hit me. And I still am not sure the, the, the physics and the logistics of how this happened, but all I know is that I never had time to hit my brakes. All I did was flip the steering wheel as fast as I could. But I do know and afterwards what was happening is his, his, the, the tractor trailer was jackknifing, so he was actually turning away from me. I turned this, and I actually bounced off the side of his cab of his truck. And once I bounced, it looked like somebody took a can opener along the side of my car, ripped off the whole side of my car, and it was all black because I rubbed along the side of his wheels. He jackknifed and went into the bank. I bounced to the other side of the road and kept driving for a little while. And finally came to my senses and pulled off and turned around, and the driver was, was uh, slightly hurt. I was totally uninjured. But never, from that moment on, have I ever been more aware of how close I came to just being a spot on the road. Because if I'd looked up a split second later, it would have been all over. And I, I remember being in shock. I just, you know, whatever shock is, I, that's what I was experiencing at that moment. My dad took me home and I went to my bedroom and I just laid on the bed and stared at the ceiling and I just, I couldn't think straight. 
And then I saw my Bible, which I, at that point, didn't know hardly anything about as a new Christian. And I reached over and picked up my Bible, and it's one of those times when God works in an unusual way. You know, it's not the way you should do your normal daily devotions, but once in a while, he does something unusual. And I opened up my Bible, and it fell open to Psalm 116. And the first words that my eyes uh, caught in the Bible were these, Psalm 116, the first nine verses. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Return, O my soul, to your rest. It was amazing. It just In that moment, I, my head cleared. My soul felt at peace. I was able to get up and drive the family's other car to work an hour later in spite of what had just happened. And it was a lesson to me as a new believer that the Lord is with me. The Lord is my protector. The Lord is my healer. And the Lord is the one who in that moment delivered me from physical death. But praise God, he has promised he will deliver me from every type of death until that last great day. That's why we can sing with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can live with his creed, which he gave us in the first chapter of Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He delivers us. He redeems our life from the pit. The fourth benefit he lists is God's covenant love. And this is the most important one. Now, you may not see this in the, in the English translation, in the ESV that's in your bulletin or in the, in the, in the Bibles, in the, in the seats. It says there, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. But that word steadfast love in English, the, the two words, steadfast love, is translating one word in the Hebrew. It's the word kesed. It's probably the most important word in Scripture. Kessid. It's the word that, that is translated love, but it's the specific kind of love that is attached to the covenant of grace. Every time God talks about the covenant of grace and he wants to talk about the love that motivates his covenant of grace with us, kessid is the word that he uses. The steadfast love of God. The love of God that cannot be broken. The love of God that cannot fail. The love of God that always follows through faithfully in its promises. The love of the bridegroom for the bride. The covenant that binds them together based on promises that can't be broken. It's the steadfast love, this covenant love, this kessed is what's referred to in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. And even though scripture is one long testimony to how our tendency is to forget the covenant that God has established with us, God always remembers his covenant 
Over and over again in scripture, it says that God remembers his covenant. You know, we celebrated baptism this morning. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sunday. These are signs of the covenant, but when we observe them, it's like a covenant renewal ceremony. Back in the Old Testament, the people of God would gather together and they would have a reading of God's law and of God's promises, of his covenant of grace. They'd have it read to the people and the people would recommit themselves to serve this God who has saved them. And that's what we do when we celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. We renew the covenant with him. It's an act of worship. Remember his benefits. Remember his forgiveness. Remember his healing. Remember his deliverance from death. Remember his covenant love. And then you're ready to worship. But he doesn't end there. He ends by going as great as the wonderful things that God has given to us and done for us in his covenant love. As wonderful as they are, he goes to the real heart of worship, which is to look at God for who he is. And remember who we are in light of that. Look at verses 14 and 15. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. You see, that's what happens when your eyes are lifted from the horizontal life that you live in this fallen world, and you look to the heavens, you look to the throne above, and you see God in his glory by faith. That's what happens. You say, oh my goodness, I'm dust. I'm like the grass of the field. I'm like the flowers of the field. I'm here today and gone tomorrow. You suddenly are struck, woe is me, for I am undone. Not just because of your sin, but just because you're just a a small creature before this awesome, transcendent, powerful God. You're struck in God's presence with your own fragility, your vulnerability, your weakness, and the brevity of your life. How often is that language used in Scripture that that is to be the response even of God's children be in his presence is to realize we're just dust. We're just like the grass of the field. And man, we need that kind of mindset as we come to worship, and it's so countercultural. We live in a self-esteem culture. Everything out there is telling you how wonderful you are, how you need to think better of yourself. I think higher of yourself. But according to the word of God, apart from his covenant love, those who do not have his covenant love, their life is just a puff of smoke. The book of Ecclesiastes says that if all that there is is what's under the sun, if that's the only reality is, if God is not the Lord over the sun, if if this fallen world is all there is, and that's what most of the people around us believe, then vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Your life is worthless. This world is worthless. You see, that's why true worship is always God-centered. And that's the problem with a lot of modern worship is it's become very man-centered. I had a chance to um, watch a a documentary called uh, American Gospel um, recently. It just came out a few months ago. And I, I recommend it to you. And I knew before I started to watch it that it was about the, the uh, prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the idea that, that uh, whatever Christ did, he did it so that you could have a wealthy, comfortable, prosperous life in this world to make you uh, uh, wealthy in the world's terms, that that's what the purpose of the gospel is. It's a false gospel. 
It's amazingly prevalent. Uh, as bad as it is in this country, it's even worse in some other foreign countries. And I knew that that's what this documentary was about. But what struck me as I watched it was that they spent so long at the beginning defining the true gospel. They spent so much. I kept watching it. And they kept just going over and over and over, deeper and deeper into a, a wonderful biblical exposition of what the real gospel is. And once they had established that, then they showed the travesty and the horrors of the health and wealth gospel. And the contrast is jarring. We need to understand that God's covenant love is the only basis for our relationship with him. And that's what we come to, to remember is that what he has done for us, yes, but who he is, this covenant God, the one who has bought us with the blood of his own son. But David ends the psalm, interestingly, after you know, talking about how frail and weak and insignificant we are apart from God's grace, he ends with a vision of the Lord on his throne. Did you notice that? Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He begins the psalm by preaching the gospel to himself. You know, bless the Lord, O my soul, and remember all his benefits. But he ends with this vision of who God is, and as he lifts his eyes to see who God is, he calls the entire universe to join him in praise. The entire universe. He starts with the angels. Angels, you in heaven that see his face, you join us in praise to this glorious God, this wonderful God. Praise us. And then he, he extends it to every creature in every part of the universe at the end of the psalm. But let me close by just leave, leaving you with that thought of the tone of worship. Three times as he calls every creature in the universe to praise this God, three times in this psalm, he says that all of this is for those who fear his name. Those who fear his name. It says three times. That's what real faith looks like, is those who fear his name. And yes, we always make that caveat to say that doesn't mean cowering under your chair in fear for your life. That's not the kind of fear that the Bible's talking about. It's, it, what it is, it's an awareness of the glory and transcendence of God and, the, and the, the smallness of who we are. You know, that contrast between his greatness and who we are produces inherently a response of fear. But understanding that God accepts us freely as adopted children, and that's the key, is in verse 13, to understanding how we can come into his presence in spite of how big he is and how small we are, is found in verse 13, because of the finished work of Christ. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord com shows compassion to those who fear him. Because of the finished work of Christ, we are his children adopted into his family. He only gives us what is good. He satisfies us with what is truly good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles, as verse 5 says. His steadfast love in verse 17 is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. That fear is this weird thing that you experience in real wholehearted worship where 
you're, you're, and it's what you see every time somebody encounters the presence of God in Scripture is you're, you're both kind of, in a sense, re, you know, fall back in your humility, but you're drawn by his love. It's what we call reverence. It's awe. But it's also an understanding of because of the work of Christ, we are freely accepted as children into his presence. And it creates this weird sensation that is worship. Overjoyed with how great God is and his love for you. In spite of the, dis the distance between you, so to speak, and who he is and who you are. The key to worshiping the Lord with all that is in you is remembering his benefits, remembering who we are in his holy presence, and remembering who he is in his nature and in his grace. I want to close with just a quote. In all the reading I did and study for this passage, I came across this quote, which I thought summarized uh, the message well. This is from a, a book written by Mike Cosper, who is a, um, a worship leader in a, a sister church. And he wrote a book called Rhythms of Grace. And just listen to what he said. He said, rehearsed regularly in worship, the gospel becomes part of our way of thinking, seeing, feeling, loving, and being in the world. It's a weekly heartbeat gathering us in and scattering us back out to our homes and workplaces. From there, we return to the gathered church, once again rehearsing the story, remembering who God has made us and singing and celebrating that identity. Liturgy that immerses people of God, the people of God, in the rhythms of grace doesn't merely train them for God-centered worship, it trains them for God-centered lives. And that's the connection between what we do here on Sunday morning and what you do every day of your life. Your whole life becomes worship as this translates into every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Psalms, and particularly Psalm 103, of the many Psalms that teach us how to worship. We, in our old nature, were averse to worshiping, and we were drawn to worshiping ourselves. Lord, you have changed our hearts. You've taken away our hearts of stone. You've given us hearts of flesh, and part of that new nature is a desire to see your glory, to experience that elation of recognizing how great you are and the greatness of all that you've done for us. Father, I pray that we as a congregation of your people would be continually growing and bearing more and more fruit of God-centered worship to your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen.